The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life is full of twists and turns, stress, changes, grief, moments of growth, and moments where we feel like we're taking a few steps back. It's important to show up for yourself through all of the struggles that life can bring. BetterHelp Online Therapy is here for the twists and turns and will assess your needs and can match you with your own licensed professional therapist in less than 48 hours. And for Spirituality and Health podcast listeners, get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com backslash spirituality health. From Spirituality and Health magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health podcast. Our guest today, Shweta Vikram, is an international speaker, trained yogi, certified Ayurveda health coach, and best-selling author of a dozen books. She's appeared on NBC and Radio Life Force, and she's featured in a documentary with Dr. Deepak Chopra. Her new book is A Piece of Peace, Everyday Mindfulness to Improve Your Well-Being and Creativity. Shweta Vikram, welcome to Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thank you so much, uh, Rabbi Rami. It's wonderful to be here. I'm a big fan of the magazine and I loved our conversation. I'm super excited to be here and Happy New Year to everyone who's joining us. Thank you and Happy New Year to you. Thank you. So let's start with the subtitle of the book, I guess you call it, Everyday Mindfulness to Improve Your Well-Being and Creativity. Mindfulness is a term I imagine that most of our listeners are familiar with, but you connect this to Ayurveda, and I think that may be less familiar to people. Mm. So you grew up in India in a household where your grandmothers used Ayurveda in their everyday lives. Tell us a bit about your upbringing and help us get a basic understanding of the science of Ayurveda. Sure. How many hours have we got? (laughs) (laughs) Because I can... I can talk, walk, sleep Ayurveda. So Ayurveda is science of life. Basically, that's what it is. Like, what do we do to stay healthy? What do we do to prevent from falling sick? And if we are sick, what can we do in a holistic way to get back to our fullest? And so with my grandmothers or with my mom, I noticed they, the kitchen was the apothecary, that pretty much like the spices weren't just things that you added for flavors. They had healing mechanisms. They talked about food combination. 
for example, don't mix dairy with meat. But we, we heard that, but don't mix fruits with dairy. So a lot of the advice came about the food aspect, but Ayurveda is an entire, at least in India, it's an entire medical system. It's over 5,000 years old. It has eight branches, including psychiatry, which is something that I'm very interested in, the gut-brain health and the emotional and mental well-being. So there are eight branches. So it's an entire medical system. It's just practiced differently in the United States. But yeah, that's my background. So to me, it was like, if, oh, you have little body ache, drink turmeric milk, and then there would be something else in it, or eat ghee in your lentils every day. It just made no sense when I was growing up. Like, that's what mom did, or that's what my grandmothers asked us to do. So we did that. But as I got older, I saw there was a lot of sense to what they said. There was a lot of wisdom. And this is not just Indian culture, across cultures and what grandmas have to tell you about what food means. I think and that's where my story started, because as I was telling you earlier, like I've grown up across three continents and I've been very fascinated by food and stories and the healing aspect of both food and stories. And Ayurveda to me is very central because much like yoga, they were narrated to students through sutras, which is like the teacher talked, there were no printouts, there were no like desktops or laptops, like the teachers narrated everything and the Students took made mental notes and they passed it down to their disciples. So there's a lot of beautiful storytelling and it's all about healing. So, yeah. So the only Jewish parallel maybe is chicken soup. That's all we've got. You know, if whatever is ailing you, try chicken soup. But there is, I will say, the don't mix, when it comes to kosher foods, the food combinations or the permissions that I've heard from or read from my friends or read about in Judaism, they're very similar to what's practiced in Ayurveda. Oh, that's interesting. I would not have guessed that. So you have an example that you can think of? Absolutely. No cheese with meat when you're ordering a turkey sandwich. So, So how is that? translate into so ayurveda would tell you that don't mix alkaline foods with acidic foods it leads to digestive issues and when you trace back all of these we look at them as rules and limitations but they're actually really empowering wisdom of our ancestors a lot of cultures that have a lot of digestive issues if you trace back how we eat you can see a sense of like too many things on the place, too many incorrect or incompatible food combinations. Even in Hindu homes, there are separate utensils, cooking dishes for meat and vegetarian, and you wouldn't mix them like in, in the old days. And then we thought we became modern and, oh, this is hogwash and let's do all of this together. And you see even India and their wellness of the country is changing compared to like my grandmothers who barely had any illnesses. They ate at home, they ate a certain way compared to today where there are like a lot of digestive issues and obesity and all of these problems even arising in India. So these simple rules of food combinations, I think, are very rooted in every culture. That is fascinating. And I thank you for that because I had no idea. I keep kosher. So those are rules that I grew up with. And then when I was much older, I decided to just give up meat eating altogether. But I didn't make the connection between kosher and, and Ayurveda. So I'm going to stick with this for a second. I want to go back to the writing aspect of your book because it's so central. Sure. In the book, you talk about this practice, which I knew about, then forgot about, and then you reminded me of it, and I started doing it again. And that is drinking warm water. Right. And I was trying to think of, so what could we 
And what could you advise listeners to do if they wanted to get started with this? And I thought, talk to us about just drinking warm water. Oh, absolutely. So the first thing when you wake up in the morning, for a lot of people, we make ourselves a cup of coffee or a cup of tea or whatever have you. Some people even like ice cold beverages. Ayurveda would recommend to drink warm water. Again, you don't want it scalding hot. You don't want to burn your tongue, just warm water. What that does is it starts peristalsis. So for people who are battling any kind of constipation or who have trouble with bowel movements, it helps them. Warm water also is really good for detoxifying the system. So it gets the toxins out. So think of it this way. If you've eaten eaten fries and you wash your hands under cold water, the grease is still on your fingertips, right? Versus if you wash it with warm water, it's gone. It's the same effect on the inside. So things that are sticking to our gut, warm water will move that along. And then when we go to the bathroom, things come out the way that they should. The other good thing with warm water is, so from an Ayurvedic perspective, our digestive fire, which is Agni, it's also uh, your digestive enzymes, all of that is called um, Agni. So food, is it's not just what you eat, but what you digest is of utmost importance in Ayurveda. And so when we drink cold water, we actually extinguish our digestive fire, like the ice and the coldness. What does keep the fire going is warm water. So there are multiple reasons, like I said, like to detoxify, to get the peristalsis going, and to get the, for lack of a better word, to get the gunk out of your digestive tract, get it out of your body. Warm water can be very helpful. Some people like to squeeze a little bit of lemon in it. Ayurveda is very customized for somebody who is high pitta, which is, again, not too complicated, but has a lot of fire element in them. Lemon might not always be the best idea. That's why like simple warm water, you also get a lot of these bottles these days that's uh, meant for hold, uh, sorry, cold and hot beverages. So if even if you're working from home, just fill a bottle of warm water and sip on it throughout the day. The idea is to not gulp it. And also one last thing, warm water nourishes the tissues. So it actually is a great source of nourishment. And on hot days, when we think I'm going to drink cold water because I'm so hot, Again, again, according to Ayurveda, that might not be the smartest move because when we drink warm water, we might feel hot when it's 100 degrees outside. But what it does is because you sweat, it actually lowers your body temperature without messing up with your digestion. So there are like several benefits to it. Yeah, and it's, it, it makes total sense, I think. And I've been doing it for a few weeks. Nice. And I, I think it works, not just with moving your bowels and all the rest of it, but it's just... There's something, I can't tell you what it is, but there's something, some positive benefit that I get from this that I wasn't getting from cold water, which is my, that, that was my drink of choice. So I've made the switch to warm water. And, and again, just so that listeners are clear, you're not suggesting warm water d- does not equal tea, or does not equal coffee. This is just That's plain, right. plain water or with just a little Just plain water, yeah. Yeah. All right. Fascinating. And and actually, one other thing on this, when you talk about uh, Agni, so Agni is also the the deity of fire. Is that yes? Yeah. So it has a lot of it. It goes beyond the science. The term itself comes from the religious aspects. It it uh, does. And what I I love what you said about how. So I have a friend whose daughter is five years old, and she drinks only warm water very fascinating kid. And and she said to me the other day, she was like, it just tastes better. 
And I think it goes back to the aspect of warm water is nourishing. When we feel nourished, when our tissues feel hydrated, there is a feeling of contentment. There's a feeling of, I feel good versus something that's just going through you and is extinguishing the good things in your body, which can be cold water at times. So I think the opposite of that is warm water. And when the five-year-old said that to me, it just tastes good. It tastes better. It, it, I was like, oh, this is what nourishment feels like. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Let me switch gears because there's so much sure. more to your work than, than this. And I want to get a little, if this wasn't esoteric enough for people, I want to get a little more esoteric and talk about writing and meditation and language. So I think you told me before we started that you have studied Sanskrit, correct? Yes. Okay. So I have also, but only enough to fail the course. I spent days once with a Sanskrit specialist just trying to pronounce, using English letters, the H in dharma. And mm. it took me a long time not to say <laughs> dharma, but dharma. So right. I've given a lot of effort to this. And, and I want you to think Sanskrit in a, in a certain way as I lay out my question for you. So okay. in, in your book, A Piece of Peace, you have a section called Why Writing is a Form of Meditation. And I'm going to just quote a sentence from that part of the book. And you write, I write because writing is how I make sense of my world, close quote. So I, I agree with that. I write for the same reason. But I wonder especially when we're talking about writing as a form of meditation, if writing doesn't actually distort my view of reality. Let me lay out what I have in mind. So I write in English and I see the world according to English grammar. So there's nouns and verbs and as if there were these separate entities, one, the noun exists and then it acts on a subject or something like that, on an object, but they're discrete. The actor and the action is discrete. But in my meditation process, I don't see that at all. I, the way I, I see the world in meditation is everything is process. There's, in fact, there are no nouns. I think science would say there are no nouns. There's just gerunds. There's just happenings. There's just verbs. There's no such thing as a tree. There's right. just reality treeing. Mm -hmm. So what I'm wondering is two things. I suspect that this subject verb object division or the noun verb division is a grammatical illusion that masks the fact that there is something non-dual advaita to the universe mm -hmm. and i'd love you to comment on that and then i'd like to know if sanskrit offers a different take or is, is sanskrit as locked into nouns and verbs as english the most interesting thing to me about Hindi and Sanskrit is, both, both Hindi and Sanskrit and Hindi stem, they're both Devanagari script and Hindi is, Sanskrit is the parent to Hindi as well. And I speak Hindi. Is that there, every relationship, every individual, there is a name, there is a noun, there's a pronoun. It's very specific. So for instance, there's no aunt or uncle in Hindi or Sanskrit. It's very specific. Mom's sister has a specific pronoun. Mom's brother has a specific pronoun. Mom's brother-in-law has a specific. So I feel it gets more detailed and nuanced, but it also makes it easier. So if I say Masi, which if you speak Hindi immediately, what that means, it's like mom's sister. So Ma is mom, C is light. So there is also this 
these two words that come together to become one word. But it also, it's not just any word. It makes sense just like mom. And who can be closest to you than your mom's sister? So versus English, if you were to say my aunt, then you get into specifying what relationship it is. So I think once you get a hang of the language, and it could be my bias because I grew up speaking Hindi, I feel it's easier to understand relationships. And in my writerly head, that makes it, and I think in English, not in Hindi, because I grew up speaking in English, going to a school where everything was taught in English, studied from a boarding school where you weren't allowed to speak in Hindi, whole separate conversation. But my point being, I think in English, I process in English, but I think having Hindi and Sanskrit as a base or a foundation allows me to explore writing in different dimensions. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life is full of twists and turns, stress, changes, grief, moments of growth, and moments where we feel like we're taking a few steps back. It's important to show up for yourself through all of the struggles that life can bring. BetterHelp Online Therapy is here for the twists and turns and will assess your needs and can match you with your own licensed professional therapist in less than 48 hours. And for spirituality and health podcast listeners, get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com backslash spirituality health. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So I understand the, the specificity that you're talking about. There, there's a book that I've carried with me since college. So it's got to be almost 50 years, this book. Wherever I've moved, this book has moved with me. It's called Ways of Thinking of Eastern Peoples. Oh, wow. And there's a chapter on Japanese, Chinese, um, Korean, I think, and Sanskrit. And in the premise of the book is that the grammar of these different languages shapes the way we view the world. And I'm just wondering if the grammar of Hindi, the grammar of Sanskrit influences the way you see the world. Not so much for me. And I think that has more to do with, I haven't, I've, the longest I've lived in any city is New York. I've moved around a lot, different countries, different continents. So there hasn't been a phase where I've spent so many years where the grammar would shape my view of the world. Stories, on the other hand, and cultures have. I've always been um, curious about cultures and I've always noticed the gender differences, uh, noticed the, the gender dynamics. So I think those have been 
more influential in shaping my mind and stories or how I navigate words or the world period. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that I told you it was an esoteric question. No, but, but that, I love that you got me thinking and I love conversations like these. I appreciate that. So, so let's go back to your, your notion that writing is a form of meditation. How do you, what do you have in mind when you say that? So I feel much like yoga or meditation, writing is about showing up. It's showing up and without ego, without expectations. It's showing up and letting go. It's showing up for showing up. So I I feel like there's a lot of similarity in the practice. It's also about that focus, right? The one-pointed focus in writing is just the one-pointed focus in meditation that gets us to the next. So I feel like there's the more we evolve in our meditation practice or yoga practice. And I've seen that when I didn't meditate and when I wrote and when I started meditating and started to write, I noticed the difference. There is a lot of healthy detachment. In the Bhagavad Gita, we there is this whole philosophy of the whole idea of practice and without detachment or ego. And I think that's where I'm getting at in that essay that you show up to your meditation practice or you show up to your writing just like in your meditation practice, but don't be attached to it. That just because I've shown up today, I'm going to have this the best meditation experience of my life or I will write 2000 words. Sometimes it'll just be a blank page, but it, it's habit forming. And then there comes a time where you start to see the showing up in itself is such a beautiful journey. It's not the it's not the destination, it's the journey. And that's where the parallel is. Do you ever get the sense that yeah, you show up, but then the words show up as opposed to you thinking them through and trying to... Yes. That to me comes later in rewriting. But I get the sense that my books are written on another dimension and I'm just trying to type as fast as I can to keep up with whatever's coming out. Does that ever? All the time. All the time. All all the time. And I I think it's because the meditation practice makes a huge difference because when you don't do that, and you know, people have their own practices that they rely on to keep their creative life going or to keep it nourished. But I feel like when you have a good, reliable, or a daily meditation practice, your brain also starts to know how to focus. It becomes like that Pavlov's dog in some way. If 9 a.m. is when I write, when I show up to my computer a month down the line, words show up before I show up. So I, I think everything in life is about daily practices. And the daily practice might look like different things to different people. But like when people tell me I wrote today and then I wrote a month later, that's not a daily practice. And until something becomes a daily practice, it's hard to really get good at. Can you tell us about your daily meditation practice and then about your daily writing practice? Sure. I meditate minimum twice a day. I I do transcendental meditation. So, you know, that you expect to meditate twice a day. So the first thing when I wake up and before I go to bed, but I have to, I, I play multiple roles. I like have my business. I do writing. I have a day job. I'm in school. I teach yoga. So between these roles, I'm trying to get better at taking 10 minutes to meditate. And it could be Something simple as just focusing on my breath. It doesn't have to be anything bigger than that. Or it could be listening to a YouTube video. To me, meditation has become that much needed pause, which sometimes I forget aside from my two meditation practices in a day. So that's what my meditation looks like when the weather is nice and the virus isn't going all crazy on us. Like I will go for a daily walk or a daily hike. 
And for me, that too is meditation. Like the phone is off. I might be listening to a podcast or sometimes just be amidst trees and not really doing anything. That is mindfulness meditation. Depending on the need of the moment, my meditation practice changes, but my TM practice is very uh, persistent and twice a day. And when you're doing TM, you're using a mantra. I'm using a mantra, yeah. Okay, so how, I don't know how to frame this question. How important do you think mantra japa is, mantra is in a meditation practice? Is that something you would recommend to people? Speaking Ayurvedically, depending on the person's imbalance. So there are three primary doshas in Ayurveda, vata, pitta, and kapha. And some of the doshas would do better if there was a mantra chanting. Define dosha for us. Okay, so it's almost like your DNA. So it's your imprint. Like Ayurveda is about five elements, space, ether, which is so air, space, fire, water, earth. These five elements, when there's a combination of two, vata is air and ether, pitta is fire and water, and kapha is earth and water. It's, it's a beautiful science on how people's personalities fall under this, days, time of the day, what kind of foods, even pets you can define by doshas, trees you can define by doshas, and things like that. So for someone who has a hard time focusing, very often vata imbalance might be might show up as in inability to focus, too much movement, insomnia, nervousness, anxiety. So for them, like if there is a, a chant, it might be a little bit more helpful. So the mind doesn't run. Even if it goes away, wanders, it comes back to that one thing versus asking them to sit and try to breathe. It can create more anxiety. So I think it, depending on what the person needs, what I like about it is the, the no pressure in transcendental meditation that I realized, like showing up much like writing or meditation is important. And some days the practice, the, the session is so deep and then other days it's on a very surface level and that's okay. So I like the compassion in the practice. For me personally, that's what speaks. So if somebody wanted to find out what their dosha was so they could figure out what's the best practice for them or at least to experiment with, how, how would they do that? They should get in touch with me. Oh, yeah, well, that's I, very nice. <laughs> yeah, no, because I did write an article for Spirituality and Health magazine that there are a lot of these online dosha quizzes, and I'm not a big fan of them. The reason I said they're a lot of fun. It's fun to know, hey, I'm Vata, hey, I'm Pitta. But there are two things in Sanskrit, Prakriti and Vikriti. So Prakriti is that imprint that you're born with, that constitution that you're born with. Vikriti is the imbalance. So that imbalance could be the environment, the food, your diet, your lifestyle. What we treat in Ayurveda are your imbalances. And that only an Ayurvedic practitioner can determine for you. The, the, the dosha quizzes will tell you what you were born with. But most of us are far away from what we were born with. We are in the diseases, the illnesses, the small and the big things. They all happen because of imbalances. So if you start treating yourself, and then it's, oh my God, I have anxiety. I should take ashwagandha. Ashwagandha might not be for everyone. And if you're treating your balance instead of your imbalance, you could create more health issues for yourself. So that's why I'm like, uh, I ended up writing this article, like talk to an Ayurvedic practitioner instead of self-diagnosing yourself and self-medicating. And by medicating, I say Ayurvedic herbs, but don't just take it because it's out there and you think it might be a good fit for you. Let somebody confirm that. So if people wanted to get in touch with you, it's through your web, your website? Yes, there is a contact form on there. They can fill it out, set up a free discovery call, and we can take it from there. Okay. 
Let me ask you something else, because I know we don't have a lot of time left. So what is your daily writing practice? It's first thing. I wake up between 4, 4.30 in the morning. And uh, that's when I meditate and then I write. Because I start my day job by 6.30. So I need to be done with my, my pranayama, my, my own practices and writing before I shower and log into work. And morning time is that vata creative hour where, you know, our consciousness and the universal consciousness, they, they are in a very Zen space. And it's a good creative hour. The vata hour of the day is 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. and then 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. But the morning hours when the world is really quiet, for me, that's my writing time. And I also feel because, as I, and you, you read this from the book, uh, Ravid, that to me, writing is how I navigate the world. So if I'm dealing with anything, which is a human nature, we all have our issues or trying to make sense of the things. If I write first thing in the morning, I feel I can navigate the world with writing and meditation on my side. I am better prepared to navigate the world. So if someone wanted to start a writing practice, any hints? Uh, sure. Just don't think of writing as something that you do when you don't have other things to do. The way you <laughs> eat, the way you exercise, which I hope most people do, the way you move, make sure or the way you are on social media, just make sure you carve out time. And I know people will say you can do it once a week. I'm a big believer. You want to start forming habits, like for 21 days, do something in a row. That's when something becomes a habit. So it could be just 20 minutes. It could be two lines. And also stop over-defining writing. If you tweet it, that too is writing. So like the art of writing, how you express it is different but write every day, even if it's two lines, because those two lines become an entire paragraph, then two paragraphs, then a page, and eventually a book, should that be your goal. Yeah, absolutely. So let me ask a corollary question, and then sure. I have one last thing I want to ask about. You, you mentioned the Bhagavad Gita, and I'm curious, how central is that text to your life? I it's one of the most practical books that I've come to appreciate as an adult. When you're a kid, especially when you're a teenager, like anything that your parents tell you or they're like, oh, so not cool, I'm not doing that. But as I, as I get older, it's a very practical book. And, you know, every now and then I find myself at this juxtaposition where I'm seeking answers and I will turn to the Bhagavad Gita for those answers. It's a manual for me. Yeah. For lots of us. Yes. Do you have a translation or translator that you like? I'm, I'm forgetting the name Ishwar. Ishwaran? Um, Ishwaran. Ishwaran. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. His, his, he's got a three-volume ex, exploration of the Gita, his translation, and then his practical commentaries. Right. Yeah. Eknad Ishwaran is fabulous. Yeah. It's, if you want to try to find him on the internet, you can, if you can't figure out how to spell that, you can look up Blue Mountain Meditation Center. He's deceased, but that's where he was. That was his, the place he founded, Blue Mountain Meditation Center. Amazing teacher, wonderful person, and his work on the Gita and other things is, is just fantastic. Okay, last question, because I know I'm, I'm taking more time than we agreed to. But last question, and this may be beyond you, but you reminded me, I don't know how I could have forgotten it, but I got lost in, in our conversation. Obviously, we live in this pandemic and we've got Omicron and the Delta variant and all this stuff. Is there something, in addition to drinking warm water, which is a general thing to do, is there something from Ayurveda that people might do that might just 
help them navigate, if not the disease, I'm not asking for you to, to prescribe a cure, but the, the, oh, the anxiety over the disease, the tension. Sure. So there is, and people can look at YouTube videos of how to do it. There's something called alternate nostril breathing, which is Nadi Shodhana in Sanskrit. So alternate nostril breathing is really great because it doesn't have contraindications. It can be done first thing in the morning or before you go to bed. It really balances out both the hemispheres of the brain. It's really good for lowering anxiety. It also helps those battling sleep issues. So it's something that I highly recommend. It's called alternate nostril breathing. So you're pretty much breathing through one nostril then exhaling from the other, then inhaling from that nostril, exhaling out the other. And in fact, I watched a documentary, Dr. Sanjay Gupta's documentary with CNN called Chasing Life. And he does the alternate nostril breathing in one of the yoga colleges in India. And, you know, they, they track how just doing that and they have all these wires and gadgets attached to his head. And you can see it on the screen how his brain gets oxygenated by doing alternate nostril breathing. So now they're capturing, like it's not something that you just feel good. There is evidence-based science and proof of how it makes a difference in lowering anxiety and oxygenating a brain. So Sanjay Gupta, CNN, the doctor on CNN, the yes. documentary is called? Chasing Life. Chasing Life. Yes. And alternative nostril breathing. It's I'm surprised that you said that only because I just started doing that again. Not because anyone told me, it's just all of a sudden, I, said, I bet this will help. Right. And so I, I attest to the fact that it's simple and it does, it has this deep calming effect. It does, so yeah. I will have to check out the documentary. This has been a fantastic conversation. I very much appreciate it. Our guest today, Shuita Vikram, is the author of A Piece of Peace, Everyday Mindfulness to Improve Your Well-Being and Creativity. You can learn more about her work at www.shivitavikram.com, and you can read a number of her essays at the uh, or on the Spirituality and Health website, which is spiritualityhealth.com. Shweta, thank you so much for talking with us on the Spirituality and Health podcast. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you for this beautiful conversation. So thought-provoking. I wish we lived in the same city. I would like love to talk to you more <laughs> about spirituality, wellness, the overlaps between Judaism and Hinduism, and so much more. I would love that if we were even, <laughs> if that were possible. But sadly, we live far apart. Yes. But again, thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Spirituality and Health Podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review us in your favorite podcast app. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share us on social media and tag us at SpiritHealthMag. You can also follow me on the Spirituality and Health website, where I write a regular column called Roadside Musings. Don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. The Spirituality and Health podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Mallory Corbin. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening.
This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life is full of twists and turns, stress, changes, grief, moments of growth, and moments where we feel like we're taking a few steps back. It's important to show up for yourself through all of the struggles that life can bring. BetterHelp Online Therapy is here for the twists and turns and will assess your needs and can match you with your own licensed professional therapist in less than 48 hours. And for Spirituality and Health podcast listeners, get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com backslash spiritualityhealth. Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, your inner voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.